0: Hi, I'm Rachelle Young.
1: And I'm Sam Tracy.
0: And you're listening to season two of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy,
1: an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs.
0: Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy
1: and hopefully have some fun while we're at it
0: we neither condemn nor condone drug use rather we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science compassion health and human rights as always we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week a couple of quick hit headlines on our forecast for the week ahead then It's time for the third installment of February's Drug of the Month, where I discuss the history of heroin. Up next is our guest, James Casey, who helped co-found the Psychedelic Club in Boulder, Colorado, a new student-run grassroots organization that is now expanding to other campuses across the country. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is important, none of it matters if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us on episode 32 of This Week in Drugs. And now it's time for this week's weekly news and forecast, where Sam and I will give you updates on the biggest uh, headlines this past week from drug policy, and also give you a preview of things to look out for in the next weeks. So what's our first story, Sam? Sam?
1: All right. So our first story this week is that uh, in Colorado, which is now legal marijuana sales for over two years, new data on marijuana DUIs just came out and things are actually looking pretty good. Uh, so the total of number of citations in 2015 was actually 1.3 percent lower than the number of 2014, which was the first year in which this data was collected. So last year, there was a total number of four thousand five hundred forty six citations issued for DUIs of all sorts across the state and that included 347 of which uh, where marijuana was the only only indicator and 665 citations where marijuana was one of the indicators so someone using alcohol and marijuana for example and so since this is just selected, i don't want to rush to to any conclusions too quickly but it does really counter prohibitionist fear-mongering that we would see these huge increases in duis after legalization passes
0: Yeah, this is actually surprising that we've seen a drop, even though it's only very slight, Um, because I would have assumed, you know, if we did see a big increase, it would have been because law enforcement officials were, um, you know, enforcing these laws more strictly or basically looking for, you know, marijuana impaired drivers. Um, But I suppose that's that's probably the baseline they started at anyway in 2014.
1: Mm hmm. And it is interesting, too, because there's actually uh, are some a lot of regional variation here. Um, And so while there was an overall statewide drop, uh, there was uh, in Larimer County. Uh, where one of the sheriffs is actually the uh, one of the leading prohibitionists who is party to one of those lawsuits in which is trying to get Amendment 64 overturned in federal court. Uh, So in his county, uh, there was actually a pretty huge increase over from 2014 to 2015. Uh, in, In 2014, it was 91 citations and that jumped up to 135 last year. Um, And so in that case, I think it is really that the sheriff is devoting a lot more resources to this and telling his officers to uh, to focus on marijuana DUIs, probably at the expense of, you know, focusing on other things. That's
0: really interesting because I remember reading that article about that specific sheriff, too. And that's a complaint Mm -hmm. he also makes. He's saying, oh, I use up so many resources enforcing these marijuana (laughs) or marijuana impaired, Mm -hmm. you know, driving laws and where where I could really be using my resources somewhere better. And it's kind of like mm-hmm. my response mm-hmm. to that would be that's your choice. Please do. So do it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's what all the other officers and police departments are doing. Mm-hmm. And I also wonder if this does have anything to do with marijuana users getting better educated and safer about their consumption, too, whether that's people listening to public education campaigns that recommend not driving after consuming. Or people just getting to know what their own personal limit is, say, if someone was a very uh, novice, if someone wasn't buying on the black market and became a consumer after uh, after legalization, they might not have known their limits as well and gotten into some bad situations uh, when they first started using. But now after they know, maybe it's uh, a lot, a lot better and uh, having people know when not to be behind the wheel.
0: And, of course, the underlying problem with all of these citations is still that um, scientifically we don't have an accurate way to measure actual impairment. So in Colorado, Mm -hmm. there's a five nanogram rebuttable presumption that if you have more than five nanograms of THC uh, in your per milliliter of blood Mm -hmm. i believe uh then you're assumed to be impaired even though you know for regular or heavy users like medical cannabis patients uh they may have a baseline Mm -hmm. level of more than five nanograms in their blood at all times without being intoxicated Mm -hmm. so moving on to our next story this is a marijuana focused one too and i kind of think we have a Marijuana heavy episode this week, but once in a Mm. while it can't be that bad (laughs) Um, So this one is focused on Australia and their infamous stoner sloth anti-marijuana campaign uh, (laughs) Which we have discussed on the show previously Um, So a recent public information um, Request was filed um, showing that that campaign cost taxpayers about two hundred and fifty thousand US dollars. So the report found it cost about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in Australian dollars, but converted to US dollars. That's two hundred and fifty thousand and involved about two hundred and sixty five staff hours to produce, um, which amounts to about thirty eight days of full time work. Um, So about a third of that money was spent on research on the effectiveness of cannabis education programs and market research. Um, and the member of parliament in Australia who actually filed the public information request that revealed these costs uh, Her name is dr. Maureen Faruqi is quoted saying Quote it is baffling and frankly quite depressing that the New South Wales government Wasted this much public money and hundreds of pu- hours of public service time on such a poorly conceived idea um, And I think Sam and I both agree that uh it couldn't have been better stated. Uh, She's Mm. absolutely right. Like um, just like some other recent anti-marijuana campaigns that we've seen here in the U S this was completely ineffective at accomplishing the goal of reducing adolescent use of marijuana. Um, And that it's frankly surprising that they did any research whatsoever. Um,
1: Yeah. very surprising that a, a, a full third of it was spent on the research on these, uh, on how effective these programs are just because you'd think that they'd be a bit more effective after doing all of that research. Right. But... <laughs> and then
0: and uh, somehow their conclusion was that uh, uh, teenagers would respond positively to like this cartoon, this like stuffed mm-hmm. mascot animal that is really mm-hmm. um, condescending
2: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: to young adults. Um, so I thought Dr. Faruqi's quotes were so on point that for the rest of my update, I'm just going to read you what she said, because I don't really have anything <laughs> else to add. So mm-hmm. she continues looking at the $60,000 plus spent on market research alone. You'd think they would have had a better idea about what actually might have connected with people. Instead, the Baird government, Baird being the. Uh, um, person in charge <laughs> of, the, mm, of New yeah. South Wales, uh, the Baird government became the laughingstock of the world as the now infamous sloth made international headlines for all the wrong reasons. Faruqi said the campaign was doomed to fail because the New South Wales government refused to take an adult approach to drugs or drug use that didn't infantilize people or talk down to them. We're in dire need of an informed and evidence-based drug debate in this country, she said. So Dr. Faruqi really should be, like, the mascot of our show, (laughs) basically.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. And maybe, uh, I I mean, I'm not sure uh, what sort of doctor she is, but maybe she should be involved in whatever the next ad campaign is and if she does anything with substance use, because it sounds like she might actually have a decent idea of – of what would actually work in this kind of situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely Well, if it makes dr. Faruqi feel any better um, How much they spent in Australia is just a fraction of how much um, You know more recent anti-marijuana campaigns here in the United States have costs. For example uh, Colorado's don't be a lab rat campaign which came out I want to say in 2014 which was targeted at uh, teens not becoming like an experiment in marijuana drug use and involved Mm -hmm. large cages that are reminiscent of (laughs) uh, jail cells cost Colorado taxpayers two million dollars. So about four times how much the sloth campaign cost Um, and the partnership for a drug free America emoji campaign. um, We're not sure of the costs of actually producing that campaign or how much research they put in, but they Mm -hmm. did receive eight million dollars in free ad space. So, um, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is starting to look a lot more reasonable as far as, you know, money wasted on worthless anti-marijuana campaigns. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. And so for our next story, we're actually getting uh, away from marijuana a little bit. And this one is that a new poll released by the Drug Policy Alliance has shown that South Carolina primary voters are actually pretty progressive when it comes to drug policy reform. And so fifty nine percent of voters support decriminalizing all drugs so that people caught with illegal drugs are not arrested and are instead offered treatment. And this actually jumps up to seventy five percent when you're only looking at Democrats. And uh, among larger voters, again, sixty five percent believe that drug abuse should be treated primarily as a health problem. And that includes strong majorities of both Republicans, Democrats and independents across all age groups. And then a whopping seventy percent said that substantially reducing the number of Americans in prisons uh, is an important issue. And uh, I thought that this one was actually really interesting, too, because uh, among Democrats, 61 percent said that they'd be more likely to support a presidential candidate who promised to prioritize downsizing prison populations. And which
0: is exactly among Democrats, right, yeah. which is exactly what mm-hmm. uh, Senator Sanders promised during the debate last week. Uh, he mm-hmm. said he wanted to bring down uh, American prison populations to the average of the rest of the world. Which mm-hmm. alone means uh, releasing half a million nonviolent yeah. drug offenders, <laughs> a, I believe. Would be a really big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. So if there's one candidate who is the candidate against mass incarceration, it's absolutely Sanders. So I'm wondering if uh, this will go a long way in, in helping him win that primary that. Previously, people thought he had pretty much no chance at, but now is actually looking to be a lot closer. Right.
0: You know, that 59 percent figure of voters supporting decriminalizing all drugs um, is Mm -hmm. really very surprising to me because it's not just it's not just like close to 50 percent. It's well over 50 percent considering, you know, that South Carolina is a relatively conservative state. And also yeah. considering that there are no laws at all in this country right now that decriminalize all drugs or only one mm-hmm. that contemplates doing so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I imagine for our listeners who uh, heard last week's episode with uh, Delegate Dan Morheim introducing this in uh, the Maryland state legislature, I would think it's a pretty safe assumption that people from Maryland are. More supportive of decriminalization than people from South Carolina so it's probably a a super majority of people from that state so hopefully that actually gets some traction
0: yeah it's unfortunate it's unfortunate that um, voter support for certain policies doesn't necessarily translate to legislative support Mm -hmm. in a lot of these drug policy reform cases Um, but perhaps this means that Uh, Delegate Warheim should be reaching out to his counterparts in South Carolina to see if one of them is brave enough to introduce uh, a similar bill Mm -hmm. there too.
1: yeah that would be great and uh, and then then there is one other thing that I think is an important takeaway from this poll too is that there's actually some really big partisan gaps on whether uh, people believe that drug law laws currently are enforced disproportionately against racial minorities and so 79% of polled Democrats said that they think that they are enforced dip- disproportionately, but that number drops to only 27% Whoa. of Republicans. And to, uh, one little hedge for this, though, uh-huh. is that according to the article, it's that these opinions largely track with the race of respondents. And mm-hmm. so among any party, only 31% of whites uh, agree with this statement uh, compared to 74% of African-Americans. And so and Republicans are just much whiter than Democrats in in general. Uh, But this is still a pretty shocking thing because I would say this is, you know, an indisputable fact if you just look at all of the numbers of usage and arrest rates and incarceration rates. And so I I was surprised that there was this big of a difference.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm also really surprised. And I wonder what the disparity in opinions by race looks like in other states um Mm -hmm. where there's perhaps less racial tension but um yeah that's really upsetting our if we Mm -hmm. have republican listeners out there please continue spreading the word you know amongst Mm -hmm. amongst your people because that's really depressing (laughs) um so moving on to our final story um of the episode According to a study at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health that was published this past week Non-medical use of Adderall and generic versions of the ADHD drug increased by 67% among adults between 2006 and 2011 so young adults in, in the age range between 18 to 25 years old are the most likely to misuse these drugs as in use them off prescription or without a prescription Um, According Mm -hmm. to the senior author of the study, which is not surprising considering those are the ages in which you're in college. Um, And Mm -hmm. I imagine most of this diversion and misuse of Adderall is related to college. Mm -hmm. So the number of emergency room visits involving Adderall misuse also increased from 862 visits in 2006 to 1,489 in 2011. According to data from the Drug Abuse Warning Network which is an increase Mm -hmm. of about 70% in those five years. So according to doctors who were involved with the study, problems associated with Adderall misuse can include anxiety, agitation, and insomnia, as well as increased blood pressure, and in some very rare cases, heart attacks or strokes.
1: Wow, I'm really shocked at how large of an increase we've seen just from 2006 to 2011, and I'm curious of uh, when we'll be able to get some more updated numbers to see what things are looking like in 2015 of just that there, there's so much reporting about, you know, the heroin overdose epidemic. And obviously that's a more important in many senses because it is something that's actually killing a lot mm-hmm. of people. Um, but at the same time, you'd think that this would be reported a lot more heavily, just that uh, there have been such huge spikes in uh, Adderall uh misuse and hospitalizations as well yeah
0: i haven't looked at the data um exactly side by side but based on my memory of a recent graphic i saw i think the 2006 to 2011 period is also when uh student loans taken out by students increased like crazy also um so Mm. i don't know if that Is Related in any way to maybe like stress that students feel for performing higher if their education is costing more Or like how much Mm -hmm. more competitive college is becoming um, for a lot of students Um, Obviously this like I mean just based on Anecdotal evidence like the misuse of Adderall is related to you know wanting to perform better in school Mm -hmm. and um
1: Yeah, I definitely don't really hear about people outside of college using Adderall as like a performance enhancing drug for for day jobs or anything like that. Right. And
0: in contrast to Mm -hmm. a lot of other substances that may be used or abused by college age students, um, this isn't Mm -hmm. a party drug. Like people aren't using, aren't necessarily using Adderall to get messed up on the weekends. Like as far as I can Mm -hmm. tell, this is purely um, as a, a. a performance enhancing drugs so to speak
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so that's so that's really interesting because um, we're actually not seeing a similar problem with Ritalin abuse which is the other probably most common ADHD drug um, there have oh, only been 293 ER visits um, in 2006 compared to 310 in 2011 so again the 2011 number uh, for Adderall is 1400 89 versus 310 uh, for Ritalin, Um, and the study also says there are lower rates of abuse overall for Ritalin. Uh, The study's authors hypothesize that the higher rates of abuse with Adderall is related to its extended release formulation versus Ritalin, which is faster acting. but I, oh, interesting but mm-hmm. my impression again just based on anecdotal evidence i haven't you know i'm not a researcher who has studied the this but mm-hmm. i think that ritalin is just less commonly uh prescribed these days than adderall is um so mm-hmm. that there's fewer opportunities for diversion or abuse
1: that makes sense from my own uh just anecdotal evidence i feel like that's totally the case too just even among friends who have prescriptions that I don't really hear too many people having Ritalin anymore that it seems to have really tracked towards Adderall recently.
0: Right. And I would think that um, as far as the extended release um, hypothesis goes, I would think that the opposite is true, that people probably want like a shorter term speedier stimulant that helps them get through like mm-hmm. the next couple hours of paper writing or midterm studying versus mm-hmm. a steadier dose over the duration of a day. Like a day long right. sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so now moving down into our uh, quick hits where we're going to just give a couple of uh, interesting headlines that we didn't have time to address fully in the discussion. Uh, So our first one is that new research published on Wednesday in the journal JAMA Psychiatry found that using marijuana as an adult is not associated with a variety of mood and anxiety disorders, including depression and bipolar disorder. And this is actually a challenge to some previous research, which has shown that marijuana use is associated with depression and anxiety.
0: Um, Another marijuana quick hit. So in Massachusetts this past week, medical marijuana patients and pro-legalization activists were actually protesting the opening of a medical marijuana dispensary called Patriot Care. And that's because a lobbyist affiliated with the dispensary named dan delaney is also working on an anti-marijuana campaign opposing the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol in massachusetts patriot care the dispensary is desperately trying to distance itself from delaney's anti-legalization activities um but i don't think it's working
1: And for our next one, uh, the DEA is now concerned with overprescription and diversion of not just opiates, but also opioid withdrawal drugs such as buprenorphine. And at least one Pennsylvania doctor has been indicted on 237 counts related to prescription of buprenorphine. And allegedly, there's such a high demand for the drug that doctors are asking for cash for the prescription.
0: Um, and for our final quick hit, a new report Um States that the cannabis industry makes up about one percent of the cu- country's electricity use, and that jumps to three percent of electricity use in California. So this has been steady for the past for the past three years, approximately. Um, and some jurisdictions um, have actually already taken steps to reduce the impact of cannabis cultivation on the environment, such as the hippie mecca of Boulder, Colorado. Um, Mm -hmm. which several years ago implemented a renewable energy offset program for marijuana growers this um, this extreme use of electricity by the marijuana cultivating community um, is going to be an ongoing challenge as more states legalize marijuana but require its cultivation to be done indoors Um, because indoor growing obviously takes up more electricity Mm -hmm. than outdoor growing
1: And now moving down into our weekly forecast, a couple important things coming up this week is that uh, tomorrow, February 22nd, the two state agencies that oversee packaging and labeling of marijuana products in Oregon will be holding a workshop for producers. Officials from both the Oregon Liquor Control Commission and the Oregon Health Authority will be providing an overview of the rules for labeling as well as the pre-approval process for medical and recreational packaging. So if you're in involved in the Oregon marijuana industry or just curious about how it all works, uh, this will be a really informative event and we've got a link to it on our website.
0: So for our final forecast this week, it will no longer be a forecast <laughs> to the future once this episode airs. But as of the time, uh, Sam and I are recording today's news segment, um, we don't know the results yet. So we thought it was important to flag for you listeners. So on Friday... The Vermont Senate is set to vote. So the full Vermont Senate is set to vote on the legalization of marijuana. Hopefully, given how much support this bill has received, even from the governor of Vermont, that it passed (laughs) by the time you guys are listening. So um, as a reminder, if this bill is approved by the Senate and then moves on to the House and receives... Uh, full approval there too vermont will become the first state in the country to have legalized marijuana through the legislative process rather than by ballot initiative so um you know when you listen to this episode if you haven't heard yet <laughs> go check out <laughs> vermont's legalization bill and uh, see for yourself whether it passed or not we're crossing mm-hmm. our fingers Hopefully on this one. we'll be
1: reporting on it on a successful passage on next week's episode And so that actually wraps up uh, the weekly news and forecast for episode 32. Um, And as we always say, there's so much going on. Uh, we, We pay so much attention to all of the drug policy stories that are going on. But since there's so many of them, we do really appreciate it if you send us any stories that you come across or any events that are coming up that you think would be worth including in the forecast. Uh, So if you want to do that, you can just shoot us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And you can also message us on either Facebook or Twitter. And so uh, please uh, send some stories our way.
0: now it's time for the drug of the month, where we take a closer look at a different drug each month. For February, we've been learning more about heroin, and last week, Sam talked about the science behind heroin and how it interacts with the human body. On today's episode, I'll be discussing the history of heroin, the origins of its use, and evolving societal attitudes towards heroin users. So as I mentioned in the introductory episode, heroin was first synthesized by an English chemist in 1874. For me though, one of the most interesting historical events related to heroin actually occurred about 30 years before heroin was even invented or discovered, and is actually much more about heroin's natural precursor, opium. But, since I don't foresee us doing an opium episode anytime soon, and as a co-host of the show I can actually guarantee that we won't, much of my history on heroin today will actually focus on opium. So apologies for our more pedantic listeners who only really wanted to learn about heroin today. So, as with so many other plant-derived psychoactive substances, humanity has had thousands of years of history of using opium as a medical, spiritual, and food product. There's evidence of opium cultivation as far back as 3400 BC, during the Neolithic era, or the New Stone Age, a time where humans first began domesticating crops and animals. Many ancient empires, including the Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, and Indians, all had widespread use of opium. And opium is even mentioned in some of the more uh, most important ancient medical texts. It was the most potent form of pain relief that was available at the time and allowed ancient surgeons to perform prolonged surgical procedures. In China, the use of opium for medicinal purposes was introduced around the seventh century. It wasn't until a thousand years later, during the 17th century, when the practice of mixing opium with tobacco became widespread for recreational use. Around this time, there was a major trade imbalance between the Chinese Empire and certain European countries, especially Great Britain, where Chinese products like silk, porcelain, and especially tea were becoming extremely popular. For our regular listeners, you may remember during one of the caffeine episodes last month, Sam talked about tea being so popular amongst the British that the government had to impose a high tax on its importation in an effort to reduce use that actually led to the creation of a black market for tea. Well, that was during the same era, too. This is an incredibly fascinating story to me because seemingly addiction to one drug, tea, led to a deliberate effort to cause addiction among a different population to a different drug in order to correct a trade imbalance, so for economic uh, purposes. So just to connect the dots a little more here, basically Britain was importing a ton of tea from China to feed its caffeine addicted fiends and European manufactured goods weren't very popular in China at the time. So China would only accept silver as trade and the British were tired of being the losers in that deal as presidential candidate Donald Trump would put it. So by 1817, the British realized they could reduce the trade deficit by encouraging the use of opium among its Chinese population which the British could cultivate in their colonies in India and then sell to China through the British East India Company. Between 1821 and 1837, the sales of opium in China increased 500%. By then, the trade imbalance had, successfully for the British, been reversed, with the Chinese now exporting more silver than they were importing. Long story long, the Chinese government tried to reduce the use of opium amongst its people through regulation and control of imports. When that didn't work, a Chinese official actually confiscated and destroyed nearly 3 million pounds of opium from the British East India Company. And that upset the British enough to start a war known as the First Opium War. Um, China lost that war and on a personal note, that's why Hong Kong, the Chinese island where my parents are from, was a British colony until 1997. After the wars, unfortunately for for China, opium use continued to increase with now widespread domestic production inside china by 1905 an estimated 25 percent of the male population was regular consumers of opium around that same time over here in the united states opium became the target of what would be the first in a long history of discriminatory race-based drug laws in the us so a lot of people don't actually know this but the chinese were discriminated for Uh, certain types of drug use before, you know, other ethnicities like Black and Latinos ever were. Um, At the time, back in the 19th century still, there were no legal restrictions on the importation or use of opium in the United States, and no international treaties at all, actually, um, that yet limited international drug trade. In 1875, San Francisco passed the Opium Den Ordinance, which banned dens for public consumption of opium a measure that was fueled entirely by anti-Chinese immigration sentiments and the fear that white people were starting to frequent the dens. For those who are more familiar with the origins of marijuana prohibition, you'll recognize the parallels between this and the fear-mongering against Mexicans and blacks who smoke the quote devil's weed and according to uh, prohibitionists would corrupt white children or white women. Okay, so back to heroin for the last two minutes of the segment. Um, so, as we mentioned before, English chemist Alder Wright synthesized heroin for the first time in 1874. It was then known by its scientific name, diamorphine, and didn't become popular for any use, either medical or recreational, until 23 years later, when it was re-synthesized by accident by another chemist, chemist in Germany for the pharmaceutical company Bayer. This German chemist, Felix Hoffmann, was actually trying to produce codeine from opium poppies, a substance that was then known to be pharmacologically similar to morphine but less potent and less addictive. Instead the experiment produced an acetylated form of morphine one and a half to two times more more potent than morphine itself. This new drug was then named heroin based on the German word for heroic or strong. There the German pharmaceutical company may not have been the first to discover heroin but they developed techniques for larger scale production and this led to the first commercialization of the drug in the world from 1898 through 1910 diamorphine was marketed under the trademarked name heroin as a non-addictive morphine substitute and cough suppressant around four years later world war I broke out and after the war which the germans lost Um, As a German company, Bayer lost its trademark rights to heroin under the Versailles Treaty, as it had for aspirin. So, I know that was a lot about opium and not as much about heroin as maybe it should have been. I promise that next episode, when we come back to learn about recent news and trends around heroin, we'll we'll get back into more modern-day usage and trafficking of heroin, and also how societal attitudes towards heroin users is finally shifting from stigmatization and criminalization towards a focus on harm reduction, compassion, and public health.
1: Now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. And for today's episode, we're going to be discussing the Psychedelic Club, a grassroots organization dedicated to ending the negative stigma surrounding the use of psychedelics, with its president, James Casey. James, thanks so much for coming on.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So, to start things off, could you just give a quick little uh, blurb about what exactly is Psychedelic Club and, and how it got started?
3: So there are two aspects uh, to the Psychedelic Club. The first is we want to provide, uh, you know, education about the positives and negatives associated with psychedelics. So that way the general public can make a conscious, educated decision on their own, rather rather than have one made for them. And the other aspect of it uh, we call project community. So when Nick, one of the original founders of the club, uh, when he started it, he said that, you know, uh, you can't really pick people out of a crowd that are interested in these substances and people that won't judge you uh, for talking about them and especially your, your experiences. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was wanting to create kind of a container and community so people could uh, talk about their experiences openly without any judgment and uh, things of that nature. And we're accomplishing both of those pretty well.
1: Awesome. And you're, uh, you're based out of CU Boulder, is that right? Yes. So the
3: main, uh, chapter and the founding chapter is at CU Boulder, but we do have a few other chapters that are starting up and, uh, 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 getting going around the country.
0: How long ago did you guys decide to form this group and what was like, was there an incident that compelled you to think that this type of education and outreach was necessary or was it just the result of ongoing conversations?
3: So, uh, when I was in high school, I you know did psychedelics um, uh, a couple times, and ever since then I was fairly interested in them. I mean, a substance that makes the walls melt and distorts your view of reality is uh, something pretty interesting, mm-hmm. and it brought some uh, uh, really interesting thoughts behind that in conversations. And as I got older, I kind of grew out of it and stopped thinking about it. But uh, then I joined the army, went to basic training two weeks after I graduated high school and I went in as a combat medic and I did an entire year tour in Afghanistan came back. I was still 19 years old, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I had some really severe PTSD. I didn't seek treatment for about a year and a half. And when I did, I underwent every single treatment for PTSD that the department of defense sponsored, you know, all the way from like the really, uh, uh, the simple stuff everyone knows of to to more of the the weird treatments mm-hmm. and uh i kind of none of that helped and once i got out of the army i i uh i kind of accepted my life sentence so to speak But once i came to boulder i enrolled in the mdma research study and oh, wow. mm-hmm. in a nutshell that is uh, the only thing that gave me my life back and i uh It really breaks my heart to know that brothers I served with over in Afghanistan, you know, I'm afraid to get a call either tomorrow, next week, next month, that, you know, they killed themselves. Mm -hmm. And to know that, you know, they do these other treatments, they fail, that they'll be thrown in a cage for years on end if they seek treatment for their PTSD. So I came to Boulder and, you know, I thought like any university in the country, Boulder, CU Boulder would have a psychedelic club. And surprisingly, they didn't. So my first semester there, like a week or two after the MDMA sessions, uh, there's the first meeting. And I ended up going to it, and there's about nine of us sitting in the circle outside of a tree, or under a tree. And uh, Nick goes, okay, everyone just go around and say your uh, say your name. So people started doing that, and then they had this other girl, and she goes, oh, yeah, and your spirit animal.
2: <laughs>
3: now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty skeptical guy. All right, I grew up in the South, Louisiana in Mm -hmm. North Carolina. I was in the army, which is pretty conservative as well. Mm -hmm. And that just made me cringe. After the uh, meeting, I went up to Nick. I'm like, listen, man, uh, I got real world experience. You know, when I was in the army, I was around all these different people that, uh, that, um, you know, had different political beliefs, different uh, religious beliefs. You know, I know what they wanted to hear, and what they don't want, don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, so, you know, I can, I can talk to these people. I can interact with them. And that's and he thought that was a great idea. And I got involved ever since and me and him just created something beautiful that became a lot bigger than either one of us would have imagined.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting as far as the, uh, the, the origins of the group there in your own experience, because I had realized that you were uh, in the army from a, a couple of the talks that you had uh, given. And I saw some clips on YouTube, but I didn't realize that you had gone through the, uh, the MDMA assisted uh, therapy in those trials. And so I was wondering if you could. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of those before, uh, but if you could talk a little bit more about that, was that the one? Was that organized by by Maps or was that a different uh, a different study?
3: Yes, it was organized by Maps.
1: Right. And
3: uh, oh, I'm sorry.
1: Go ahead. Oh, just uh, if you could talk a little bit about what exactly that looked like. Was this uh, uh, multiple sessions spread out over a matter of time, or, or what sort of timeline were you looking at, and what what, what was the experience like?
3: So there are three sessions total and they're spaced out about roughly a month apart. And what's really interesting about, uh, the MDMA trials is, you know, uh, with different treatments, whether it's, uh, talking to a psychologist, getting prescribed meds, you know, these, uh, treatments last months, years, if not a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Whereas this MDMA therapy, it's three sessions and that's it. You're done.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And you know, what it really helped me to do was process this trauma that I had uh, previously become numb to. Now, you have to become numb to it when you're over there in Afghanistan, because if you have these feelings and emotions, you're straight up just not going to survive. So, you know, when you're over in Af- Afghanistan, this, that, and the other, you've got to kind of sever the connection between your heart and your head, because otherwise mm-hmm. you're just not going to make it. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then, you know, once you get back, you know, military, especially combat units are this boys club. So if you go seek treatment for mental health, you're weak. You're kind of ostracized from the community. Mm. Mm -hmm. And a great example of that is one of my best friends who I went through my medical training with in the Army. I deployed with in Afghanistan. Me and him got these matching tattoos of uh, this bald eagle. And, uh, you know, it has an American flag theme and stuff that spans like our entire chest. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty close. And then once uh, a year and a half later, once I admitted that I had PTSD, he told me I was a disgrace to the uniform and he wished he never would have served with me.
2: Oh, no. Wow. That's
3: terrible. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, once I started these, uh, these treatments while I was in the Army, you know, every new psychologist, therapist I talked to, I had to repeat these traumatic events. And I would tell mm-hmm. them over and over and over until you know, any emotional attachment to them was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I could be eating uh, spaghetti with, I don't know, a five-year-old kid, and talk about uh, uh, people getting blown up, shot up, kids getting shot in the head while laughing and really not caring.
1: Mm-hmm. And so the MDMA treatment really helped you reconnect that uh, th- that connection between your your heart and your head that you said had been been broken very very deliberately before.
3: Exactly, and mm. it's really an amazing treatment because. Um, Well, I think MDMA in and of itself is the best treatment for PTSD, mainly because, you know, you feel so euphoric, and you feel like this sense of love going on. And a great way I like to describe it is it was almost as if the MDMA was this armor I could put all over my body Mm. and dive in the darkness of my PTSD Mm -hmm. and come back out unscathed.
0: And so um, you're talking about um, the MDMA-assisted treatment in contrast to more traditional forms of treatment that you had undergone at the VA, whereas the traditional ones could last a lifetime and you would need you know, to see therapists continuously and ongoing for the rest of your life. Do you feel like the three sessions with MDMA, M- MDMA was enough to quote-unquote cure you of PTSD, or h- how do you feel like MDMA, MDMA was more effective? um, in just three sessions?
3: Well, I usually don't like to say it cured me, uh, simply because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or five days from now. Right. But, uh, yeah, with with the other treatments, I mean, it's just, it's pretty much band-aids. I got a good friend called Ryan LeConte. He's a former Marine and is the head of this organization called Veterans for Entheogenic Therapy. And, uh, he was on the CNN special with Lisa Ling, Mm-hmm. And he described the ayahuasca ceremonies and, you know, it's just like uh, MDMA is just as comparable. He said, you know, with a lot of these other treatments uh, in the military, the VA, what have you, I mean, it's just like, here's a pill, here's another pill, uh, it's pretty much like a band-aid. You're sweeping that dirt under the rug. Mm-hmm. But What these medicines do is force you to take that rug outside and beat it until it's clean. And I don't know about you, but that's the way I like to clean my house.
1: Mm-hmm absolutely and i and i'm so happy that you're able to to find that uh, that those trials that were going on just because right now it is so such a limited amount of that sort of treatment is available since it's still in the research phase and I, and i am also curious uh, as far as what what the reaction was is this something that you've you've talked about with say your va doctors do they know that you've been through this treatment because i know that even with say medical marijuana uh, there's still very very opposed to, uh, to veterans in the system using that medicinally, um, what's the VA's response been here?
3: Um, I haven't told pretty much any medical professionals. So when I Mm -hmm. came to Colorado, the doctor that I did have, uh, you know, at first I didn't tell her about the MDMA sessions because, you know, the stigma surrounded by these things. Mm -hmm. And once I told her, she said she couldn't see me as a patient anymore. So she dropped me and I had to find another doctor. So, after that experience, I just decided to really keep it to myself uh in terms of uh, speaking to various uh healthcare professionals uh personally mm-hmm.
0: So to bring it back to the psychedelic club, um given your background and your experience with the use of m d m a therapeutically and your credentials and credibility as a former military person um did you find that? when you when you you know joined the psychedelic club um that that gave the group more credibility like what was what was the reception from administration or student government when you sought approval for this group
3: um well for the most part when uh, seeking approval from uh the school or what have you I usually don't mention that uh you know I'm a veteran or I did the MDMA sessions mainly because I feel like Uh, A lot of what we do and the message that we uh, try to spread kind of speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, um, we've encountered next to no resistance uh, whatsoever from the university or really any organization in Boulder. Uh, Our other chapters throughout the country have encountered some resistance. Uh, But yeah, over here, we're doing pretty good. And I think uh, Boulder really was the best place to start, uh, this club, because it allowed us to establish ourselves, Mm -hmm. uh, gain uh, credibility, and become professional. And once we do that, we can really expand to these other places where we couldn't really have established ourselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem like Colorado and Boulder especially is some really fertile ground for this sort of uh, open-mindedness and talking about these sorts of things where other parts of the country are definitely a lot farther behind. Um, and, and so I'm also really interested in terms of uh, of your mission. You were saying that it was about educating people about a lot of the uh, both the positives and negatives of psychedelics so that they can make their own informed decisions and, and just know a lot more about them, which there's so many misconceptions out there. And I was curious of what sort of is the dynamic often at, at these events that you host in terms of the amount of people's knowledge that they already have about psychedelics, or some of the the really common misconceptions that they have out there, are there any certain stereotypes that you that you come across a lot and need to correct, or are there any any particularly uh kind of out there or entertaining sort of uh, misconceptions that people have that you need to uh, to educate them about?
3: Well, uh, you know, over here in Boulder, a lot of the events that uh, we host and people that come over here are typical. Uh, people in Boulder you know um, Mm -hmm. a lot of time people that come to these events already know a fair amount about psychedelics are already uh, pro uh, psychedelics or pro drugs to begin with Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of I'll say it this way I'm over at CU Boulder you know Boulder Colorado is pretty liberal place Mm -hmm. um like I said before, I grew up in Louisiana, North Carolina, was in the Army. So I'm, I'm a conservative Christian. A lot of the opposition I've mm-hmm. faced is with my family or with the church, which I'm really thankful for because it makes me – it kind of forces me to know what I'm talking about and mm-hmm. to back up a lot of my uh, arguments with evidence. And a lot of the misconceptions are just, you know, things that uh, we all learned as kids in the DR programs, you know. Um, if you take LSD, uh, you'll, you might end up thinking you can uh, fly and jump off a building. You might think you're a fish and you end up drowning in a pool. MDMA mm-hmm. puts holes in your brain, stored in your spinal cord, blah, 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 blah. So, and I don't really blame these people because, you know, that's what we learned. You know, that it's, that's kind of what's been forced down our throats for so long. And it's really hard to accept uh, new scientific uh, evidence that's coming out and to accept, like, these different philosophies. So a lot of time when I'm trying to do these awareness events and give talks and whatnot, I more so try to uh, uh, focus on uh, the harder people to reach, you know, conservative Christians.
0: So when you do these events or when you're doing outreach, do you ever have students um, who are perhaps interested in psychedelics, have heard from friends who have experienced it or have had positive experiences, but aren't sure about being first-time users themselves? Like, do you ever have people say like, you know, I'm interested in, in trying, but I don't know, I'm scared. And what would you tell them?
3: Uh, yeah, we do have a lot of people like that. And, um, and that's another great thing about having all these people that are pro psychedelics and already, you know, uh, know a lot about them is it's not just me telling them it, they have uh, resources on all sides of them that can uh, answer their questions. And we also through the club, try to provide these opportunities for people that are interested in trying things for the first time or interested in doing things safely. So for example, we do substance testing for students and uh, that's turned out really well. We don't get the uh, substances or the drugs uh, from them and test them, you know, cause that's illegal, mm-hmm. but we have these test kits and we rent them out to students so they can do things, do whatever mm-hmm. they want on their own time. And I'm really grateful we've been doing that because Last year, a majority of the MDMA that we tested wasn't MDMA at all. It was actually meth. So, oh, wow. wow. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of these uh, uh, n- you know, uh, news stories that have been happening, encounter- encounters with police and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes you, it makes you question if uh, the guy that was on acid, was he really on acid or was he on some research chemical that no one knows anything about? That guy that was on MDMA, mm-hmm. was he really on MDMA or was it meth? Right. Yeah. And and another uh, thing that we do as well is we got this uh, uh, thing called trip sitters. So if you decide to take a heroic dose, if you decide to do anything you've never done before, we got a group of student volunteers that uh, have been trained uh, to kind of hold space. And if things get too difficult, help you through that, uh, you know, keep you from making any stupid decisions. And when I say they've been trained, there's this organization called the Zendo Project.
1: Oh, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. We, we've about actually about, had some folks from mention, the Zendo though. Project. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic.
3: Yeah, we uh, so for uh, the listeners that don't know, they're this national organization that provides psychedelic support at music festivals like Burning Man, Africa, Burn Down in South uh, Africa, mm-hmm. uh, go to Costa Rica, what have you. And uh, one of the uh, harm reduction uh, coordinators uh, with the MAPS and the Zendo Project comes out about once a semester and hosts a workshop on how to get uh, – on, and teaching uh, the people that go these different techniques to handle these situations, whether they're happening to themselves or happening to other people.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really awesome that you do that. You provide that kind of service, because as far as uh, I mean, the drug testing kits are so important, too. But having someone who's actually trained there in order to help coach you through that sort of situation could be so important, especially for, for first timers. And, and so do you do you typically see that uh, sort of service Is this more for – do these uh, trip sitters end up going to more of like party atmospheres or is this more of kind of a one-on-one sort of thing or just kind of all sorts of different experiences?
3: Well, so far we've we've had this program out for a while. Only a few people have uh, decided to utilize that. I think that's because they're very skeptical um, Mm -hmm. about bringing someone they don't really know uh, into that kind of experience. But the few that we have done have been – Uh, Pretty therapeutic, actually. It's been uh, very similar to, you know, they read uh, about all the successes with the MDMA trials, so they either want to do some MDMA or mushrooms in a therapeutic setting. You know, we always have to remind them that, you know, we're not counselors and this, that, and the other, but we can always sit down and, you know, talk about about whatever they want to, and everything's always confidential. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And not to mention, we also, uh, we're trying to work on either this semester or next semester, get all our trip sitters CPR certified and mental health first aid certified.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! Just that they have those skills there, just in case uh, anything ends up happening. But what I
3: usually tell uh, uh, students at the meetings, or you know, wherever I uh, find the opportunity to talk about this, there's no reason for you to get arrested because we got the trip sitters. Make sure you do it safely. There's no reason for you to. Uh, uh, end up taking meth or take some research chemical that no one knows anything about because we also provide the substance testing Mm -hmm. so there's no reason at all anyone should get arrested die or seriously screw up their lives
0: that's an important message uh to be spreading an important mission to be promoting so you've talked about the zendo project and you've talked about your own personal experiences with maps um are there other research or advocacy organizations that the psychedelic club does work with um either through co-hosting events or um introducing your members to these organizations or anything like that
3: Uh, we work uh pretty closely with another student organization uh on campus the students for sensible drug policy and um yeah and we've done a lot of good work with them this semester we're hosting a documentary series every week uh showing a different documentary uh uh You know about various psychedelics and whatnot and that's that's turned out pretty well and Um, you know with students for sensible drug policy you know they always uh i mean drugs that's a really big topic to cover and psychedelics Mm -hmm. can sometimes Mm -hmm. be considered you know something in its own vein so it's really great for uh the psychedelic club and ssdp because we get to focus on psychedelics whereas they can focus on you know all the other uh important issues and uh drug use and drug policy today like uh like either cannabis or the heroin epidemic that's been going around
0: that's a really good segue because i actually had a question prepared about this um sam and i are actually both alumni of ssdp i founded uh my chapter actually up at cu boulder in the law school um, a couple years ago um and so you've kind of mentioned that psychedelic club is just more focused on psychedelics whereas ssdp has a broader mission uh, that encompasses many other harm reduction and drug reform measures Um, uh, this isn't meant to be defensive or anything but why did you think you weren't able to function within the existing structure of ssdp and that a new club needed to be created to focus specifically on psychedelics Um, and for example a lot of a lot of chapters throughout the country of ssdp are able to set their own priorities and goals um and many of them do focus specifically on psychedelics and don't do any work on marijuana or um good samaritan laws at all
3: well a lot of the time when it comes to other various drugs that are illegal um the groups that use them are are typically looked down upon Um, they're typically looked down as victims or or uh or um or mentally sick, what have you. Um, mm-hmm. when it comes to psychedelics, you know, people that use these things or are really involved in the culture are kind of their own little group. And mm-hmm. we really like to focus, um, especially on the positives, uh, with psychedelics. I mean, there's, a, there's an overwhelming amount of positives when it comes to psychedelics rather than negatives. Whereas with meth, heroin, this, that, and the other, there's an overwhelming amount of negativity relative positives.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, uh, yeah, and, you know, not, not to mention another thing I've noticed quite recently is with us, us with the Psychedelic Club, we, I'm trying to figure out a way to put this uh, so it doesn't sound bad, but we like to take, I guess, bigger and broader risks, so to say, with the trip sitters and substance testing and this, that, and mm-hmm. the other. Whereas, you know, some different organizations um, typically like to play it safe. So, for example, one of mm-hmm. our uh, drug testing flyers that uh, Nick designed says at the very top, drugs are awesome. But, you know, right below it, in parentheses, it says, but we don't condone usage. So we're going <laughs> to test it from us today, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other people I've showed this to uh, have problems with that poster. <laughs> and they think it's kind of offensive. But at the same token, um, you know, it's the most effective poster we have. I mean, I was printing them out over on campus one day. And this girl uh, that walked behind me, uh, well, I had that poster pulled up, and she stopped, walked backwards,
2: <laughs>
3: and it started a fantastic conversation. Um, she, mm. I was wanting to test her substances with us. Uh, at that, after that point, she was really wanting to spread the word about what we were doing. I mean, people are afraid because, well, you know, we don't condone usage. We don't want to say drugs are awesome, but drugs are awesome. They help <laughs> with uh, high blood pressure. They help with uh, nausea, headaches, what have you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because there are a few bad ones doesn't mean you can't say drugs are awesome. Can't say drugs are awesome. Just like, I mean, are we not allowed to say people are awesome because there's some (laughs) murderers and rapists as well?
1: Yeah, that is a really good point. And And I do also appreciate that of the idea that as an independent organization, in a lot of senses, you're able to take a lot of larger risks. Um, than say being affiliated with a, a national nonprofit organization that has a, a bit of um, certain restrictions in certain senses, even though we do always try to give our chapters a lot of a lot of freedom there. Um, and, and also, is it that you're, do you tend to focus a lot more on, say, the person-to-person sort of harm reduction side of things rather than the politics? Do you have any involvement in, say, legality of psychedelics, or are you more focused a lot more on the you know, personal, spiritual, medical side of things?
3: Um, So as a club in general, we're more more focused on the uh, spiritual, uh, medicinal, and even recreational side of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, being a veteran and going to Afghanistan, see people die for our constitution Mm -hmm. and for our Bill of Rights has got me really interested in the political side of things. And, uh, you know, I've always felt this way, but I didn't really feel uh, affirmed in my beliefs until recently. But, you know, this whole war on drugs in general is a violation of, you know human rights it's a violation of the first amendment mm-hmm. so it's something i've become really passionate about and really want to spread the word about especially when it comes to politics
0: that's great to hear i mean now that since you're located in colorado and so am i maybe this opens the door to working on some more psychedelic um <laughs> oriented legislation together
3: exactly and if anything's too risky you don't have to take a risk i can just uh, pawn it off enough
0: <laughs> that's a great strategy um, so I did want to circle back to your collaboration with uh, CU Boulder's chapter of SSDP, because remarkably, um, you guys were just very recently featured in the local newspaper, the Daily Camera, for your efforts to um, to implement harm reduction um, around recreational drug use on campus. Um, and this newspaper article, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, said that you guys are trying to form a student office or or form an, an office within the Student Life Center um, to provide students with more information about drugs and how to use them responsibly. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what exactly um, it is you guys are trying to implement or create?
3: So um, when it comes to the office and whatnot, so pretty much any student group can apply to get an office inside of uh, uh, the Student c- Center here on campus. And this is something we've been wanting to do a while, especially with SSDP, because you know, the, the only time we can uh, really spread awareness uh, or education or what have you about you know, these substances is when we do events, which takes a lot of time to plan. When we uh, set up tables on campus, which, again, we've got to work around uh, our classes and uh, what have you, we're pretty restricted. But with the office, one, that would make us look a lot more uh, credible, a lot more professional. And, you know, someone uh, just came to Colorado, say a freshman from who, who knows Kentucky or what, what have you, and they smoked a few, uh, you know, they, they've eaten a few edibles, they've smoked a few uh, bowls over in Kentucky, but, you know, come to Colorado, you know, Colorado has a potency problem, you know, and since people smoke uh, a lot more often, especially since it's legal here, marijuana is a lot more, uh, uh, is a lot stronger as a higher THC content um, than a lot of other places, especially where it's illegal. So people get, um, edibles, you know, they're used to eating an entire brownie over there that may be fine, but over here you eat an entire brownie, you might have an out-of-body experience. Mm. So, you know, if we create this office, you know, we've got some freshmen come in, they can stop by, stop by, uh, uh, you know, uh, the SSDP psychedelic club office, get some informationals on edibles, American want to make sure they can do it safely if they do other substances it can uh, rent the test kit from us there and pretty much there's someone always there to be able to answer any questions uh, for students or anybody else that's on campus about these substances
0: that's a really that's a really great and important idea i'm wondering has the reception been from the administration because now you're not just um, you know, spreading objective information, it kind of starts to look more like you're helping people do drugs, which I feel like that's a very fine line between providing information and like, and helping people do drugs. Have you had any pushback on the, the office piece specifically?
3: Uh, no, not really. Uh, I've even mentioned to, to uh, the office that deals a lot with student organizations on campus. And I've talked to them a bit about what we do with the trip sitters and substance testing. And again, no real pushback. Another really interesting thing as well when it comes to this, uh, you know, the, the thought of enabling is last semester I had a meeting with a training, training sergeant for the CUPD, you know, the campus police. And last semester there was this student called Samuel Forgy. He ended up taking uh, what was believed to be some LSD freaking out and try to kill two other students. The cops got called. Cops ended up uh, shooting them down, killing them. Really unfortunate incident. But it's mainly, it, it's, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, one, those people around him didn't know how to handle the situation, mm-hmm. and neither do police. And, uh, you know, we were wanting to provide, uh, provide that training for uh, law enforcement, a psychedelic harm, training, uh, harm prevention training from the Zendo Project, and they seem pretty open to that. And during that conversation, I again mentioned the substance testing and the, uh, uh, trip sitters to, uh, one of the police officers
0: mm-hmm.
3: and she thought it was a great idea. <laughs> no resistance from law enforcement. either.
0: That's amazing. Wow.
3: Yeah. And, uh, the, the answer she gave me, she goes, listen, I really don't care if you do drugs. Um, pretty much what we want to do is have the community take care of themselves because, People Mm -hmm. can use drugs responsibly, not harm anybody, but if you use them irresponsibly, then all of a sudden it's our problem, Mm -hmm. and they just don't want it to be their problem. And, you know, uh, this was a big issue uh, with the heroin epidemic in, like, what, the 80s or something like that, when they started giving free needle or clean needles uh, to heroin addicts. I mean, for the longest Mm -hmm. time, people thought that they were enabling uh, heroin users but that's not the case at all. You're just making sure they're doing it safely. I mean, if you can't do that, like, what do you going to do? Just let them uh, sit there and spread disease on the streets, continue to ruin their lives? I mean, the substance testing is the exact same thing. All we're doing is giving these people uh, uh, opportunities and tools to use safely. We're not encouraging any use, because they are Schedule I substances. Whether they should be or not, it's still illegal. But if you are going to break the law, if you are going to use uh, some substances, and do them safely. I mean, would you rather do some uh, MDMA or not have the substance testing and end up taking a uh, full dose of meth instead?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so important. And I, I really appreciate all the work you're doing. And especially when it comes to law enforcement, because that is something that isn't really thought about too much in terms of trip sitting and making sure that that situation is under control. But if someone isn't in or if you're in a public place and people don't really know how to handle themselves or, or handle the friends that they're with, and police end up getting added to that equation, it can go really wrong really quickly, just as you said in that really unfortunate case uh, right there, just that police don't really have harm reduction training, especially when it comes to things like psychedelics, where someone, if, if they can't handle themselves and are being, behaving really erratically, uh, that can be interpreted as, as violence or malice and police, you know, have a very violent reaction uh, in response. And so that is really important, especially in an area or in an environment like a concert or something like that, where um, a lot of people may be using psychedelics that police understand how to respond to that in a way that diffuses the situation rather than uh, making it even more terrifying for the person undergoing the experience and, uh, and potentially leading to violence when it could have been avoided.
3: Exactly. You know, law enforcement, uh, what were they supposed to do? Enforce the law. They're used to dealing with crimes. Mm-hmm. But here's the question you've got to ask yourself Is someone taking a hit of acid, uh, I don't know, at a music festival, smoking a blunt, or shooting up heroin inside their apartment, is that a crime or is that a public health issue? Most people will agree that that's a public health issue. And since that is a public health issue, Law enforcement has to play that role since these substances are illegal to be the public health officials.
0: That's really that's really amazing to hear. And I'm so glad that um, the Boulder Police Department is coming on board with that philosophy and that they're finally seeing that this is um, that what you're I mean that they're seeing that what you're doing through the psychedelic club is really a positive thing for the campus community. So this has been an incredible discussion. Thank you so much for sharing not just some knowledge about what your club does, but your personal story as well, James. That was really uh, meaningful for us and I hope for our listeners too. Um, Before we end this segment, though, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is not quite as useful if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So if you could have our listeners do something right now, just one call to action, what would you ask them to do?
3: You know, this whole war on drugs is a violation of human rights. It's a violation of the First Amendment. The United Nations themselves have said self-determination is a basic human right. Well, what is self-determination? Pretty much it's the ability to be able to uh, make decisions about your own life as long as they don't affect uh, the rights of any other people. So, and to jump off the First Amendment, we got freedom of speech. But to have freedom of speech, you have to have freedom of thought. So the cigarette that you smoke, the alcohol that you drink, uh, acid that you take care when it shoot up, what have you, it affects the way you think. It affects your mind. And if we can't have have the ability to uh, alter our minds and do with our minds what we want, then we don't have freedom of speech. So if there's ever a time to clarify thinking on these issues, if there's ever a time to a spread education about this. If you really believe it's a violation of human rights, if you really believe that the government is keeping effective medicines for age-old diseases from the people, there's no better time than now. You know, our founding followers knew the importance of self-determination. They knew the importance of freedom of religion, freedom of uh, thought, or freedom of speech. That's why it's the First Amendment.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, you know, They fought to free us from a tyrannical government. So now it's time for us to fight for our rights. So yeah, that's all I got. Is
1: mm-hmm. that good? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that that's perfect. Yeah, excellent. So mm-hmm. a call to
0: action to more aggressively exercise your right to self-determination and freedom of thought.
3: Exactly. And if that sounds like a radical idea, answer me this one simple question. What is less radical than demanding the right to be in control of your own mind?
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today again this has been james casey president of the psychedelic club at cu boulder thank you so much james
3: thank you so much for having having me i really uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on here today
0: thanks for listening to episode 32 of this week in drugs hosted by sam tracy and myself rochelle young the show was produced by tyler williams and sarah merrigan is our engagement director We'd also like to thank James Casey of the Psychedelic Club once again for joining us for our roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. Finally, if you're listening to this on iTunes and like what you hear, Please give us a rating and write a review. That's all for this week, so remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Tomorrow by New Neighbors.